0: We're going to be in Revelation 13 this morning. We are taking a few weeks off. I think it's going to be five or six weeks off from Hebrews and study the book of Revelation. I believe it's going to take us about three weeks. Not the book of Revelation, excuse me, Revelation chapter 13. I believe it's going to take us about three weeks to work our way through Revelation 13. And then we have about two or three messages I've got prepared kind of explain how I believe the world can get to what happened in Revelation chapter 13. So Revelation 13, we're looking at verses 1 to 3. And if you can stand for the reading of God's word, Revelation 13, verses 1 to 3. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and its mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for our church. Again, Lord, please be with all those that are sick this morning. Lord, They could not make it. Those that that are in pain and could not make it, Lord, and those that that just are not here, Lord, please be with them. Please be with us this morning, Lord, as we study your word. Lord, thank you uh, for your word, Lord. Thank you for our church. Please be with me. And as help me bring the message you'd have me to bring this morning, Lord. If there's things in my notes you want me to miss, help my eyes to not see them, Lord. And just things you want me to add, give me those words to say, Lord. Help me be that conduit for your message this morning, Lord. And name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. And I would like to say a, a special thank you to our substitute um, song leader. Uh, Adrian I think you did a great job so good job we, we have our uh, have our normal song leader not to be able to make it here so I call I text the backup song leader last night and backup song leader couldn't make it so we have our third string song leader is, is Adrian so thank you thank you Adrian for helping us out this morning because your dad sure couldn't have done it so let's thank you so much All right, so I'm going to uh, review our golden rule of Bible prophecy. When a plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense, but take every word at its primary literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context clearly indicate otherwise. Well, if you read these first three verses of chapter 13, it doesn't seem like it makes a whole lot of sense. So we have to go and look at some other verses to help us understand that to help us understand what uh, John's talking about there in Revelation 13. So preparing and then giving a message on such a topic as this is a quite a hard thing to do. Like I said, our, our, our message title is The Two Beasts, Part 1. We've got probably three parts to this. But this chapter of Revelation is in the Bible for a reason. It's for our instruction, it's for our edification, it's for our understanding. I believe in a time we live in, we need to look at this chapter now. I believe we need to look at this chapter now and then look at what could lead up to this chapter. After, after we study this chapter, which I think will take about three weeks, uh, then we're going to look at what is happening in our country around the world currently that I believe is setting the stage for what will happen here in Revelation chapter 13. Uh, again, I could go on for months on this topic, but I'm trying to limit it to five to six weeks at the most. And then we'll get back to the, the Hebrews. So if you think about what we are studying here, you know, we're supposed to exalt Christ. Messages are always supposed to exalt Christ, center on Christ. But this message is really a hard, hard one to do that with. And I was thinking, how does this message, how could we learn about Christ by studying these two beasts in Revelation chapter 13? And I was thinking, we maybe can learn about Christ in a negative way uh, we can look at these beasts and the, and the dragon, which is a devil, and see and say that basically everything they do, everything they represent, Jesus is the opposite and so we can learn about Jesus from seeing how evil these people are, and we know Jesus is the opposite of that so let 's keep that in mind as we study this chapter. So our setting we need to know a little bit about Revelation chapter twelve for our setting here, and Revelation chapter twelve speaks of the dragon the woman, Israel, and the Messiah, a picture of Satan persecuting the Jewish people throughout history and throughout the Bible and his plans uh, to—he as he keeps trying to stop God's plans for the Messiah. Satan will try to destroy the Jewish people in the final days of the tribulation. Satan, the dragon, in our setting here in Revelation 13, he has just been cast out of heaven and he is bound to earth. That happened in Revelation 12. So Revelation 12 and verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now, in our message this morning, I'm going to be asking you to turn to a lot of different passages. So you're, you're, you're going to be using your Bible a lot this morning. I believe it's necessary. Uh, so this casting out of the dragon from heaven, It has an effect of enraging the dragon. He gets very mad and enraged about this. Look at verse 13. Then we're going to look at verse 17. And when the dragon, that's that's Revelation chapter 12. When the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child, or he persecuted the Jewish people. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the, ble- the believing remnant of the Jewish people, the dragon was wroth, and he went to make war with them. And that gets us set up for what's going on in Revelation 13. So in the first verse of chapter 13 of Revelation, a character is introduced of central importance to the events of the Great Tribulation. This passage is first a revelation of the revived Roman Empire in its period of worldwide dominion, but more so, this paragraph directs attention to the evil character who exercises satanic power as the world dictator. And I believe our world is currently setting the stage for this to happen. I believe everything is falling into place, and it's the stage is being set. We're going to get more on that in the future weeks. Chapter 13 of Revelation is one of three what uh, Bible scholars call interludes in the book of Revelation. These interludes give us information of people or events that more or less have to do with the entire tribulation as a whole. Chapter 13 is kind of like a sidebar of information for us. And what is in this chapter basically applies to the whole of the tribulation. So studying this chapter before we dig into the rest of the Revelation 13 really isn't going to mess up our study at all. It's just kind of information that's just kind of inserted right there in Revelation chapter 13, but it's good to have that information as we begin chapter 2. So our first point this morning is the first beast. We're going to see Satan as the master imitator, the ultimate deceiver. We're going to see some of his strategies. So look at verse 1 again. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his head is the name of blasphemy. The thought of this verse seems to continue from the previous chapter. I highlighted a few things from chapter 12. So now we see this beast, we see this person standing on the seashore. Satan, as we know, has now been kicked out of heaven, and there is a connection here being made with the dragon being kicked out of heaven, and now the rise of this beast. The idea is that behind this coming world ruler, as we could call him the Antichrist, there is that power, that evil power of Satan behind him. Satan is the one energizing the Antichrist. The text is going to make that very clear for us as we dig into it this morning. We're only looking at the first three verses. This seems to take these final three and a half years of earth's history to another level. The dragon, Satan, gets kicked out of heaven. He goes he gets to the earth. He's enraged. And now that just takes the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the last three and a half years of the history of the earth to this point to another level. And that is why Jesus calls this part of the tribulation the great tribulation. So John says, I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast. This is the first beast. We're going to see two beasts in this chapter. Uh, along with the dragon. So that is three. So that is Satan's attempt at the unholy trinity. But right now, we are just considering this first beast, which is closely identified with the dragon. He is called the Antichrist. He is actually only called that once in Scripture. But he has many names, just as Christ has many names. We have a picture of a beast in our text. But of course... This is apocalyptic language. It's, it's one of those things when the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, seek new other sense. Well, we're having to seek some other sense in this passage. John is talking about a person here, uh, but he describes him in this language of this beast. Uh, this will be an actual person on the earth. And this is Satan's attempt at a counterfeit Messiah. A look at the many titles given to this first beast or this man. This counterfeit Messiah will help us uh, flush out his character a bit more. In Isaiah 14:4, 4, he's called the King of Babylon, and we know his seat in his seat of governance in the tribulation will be Babylon. So Isaiah 14:4, 4, he's called the King of Babylon. Isaiah 14:12, he's given the name of Lucifer. Daniel 7:8, he's called the Little Horn. Daniel 8:23, he's referred to as a King of fierce countenance. That helps us understand who this, what this man is going to be. Daniel 9:26 he's called the prince that shall come Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2:3 he's called the son of perdition and in in verse 8 he's called wicked capitalized so it's like a title a name wicked 1 John 2:8 that's where he's called the antichrist and here in Revelation 13 he's called the beast so next let's look at a contrast of the antichrist to Jesus Christ here we're going to be able to learn about Jesus by contrasting the negativeness of the Antichrist to what Jesus Christ is. Christ came from above, John six thirty eight. The Antichrist will ascend from the pit, Revelation eleven seven. Christ came in His Father's name, John five forty three. Antichrist will come in His own name, John five forty three. Christ humbled Himself, Philippians two eight. The Antichrist will exalt himself Second Thessalonians two four. Christ was despised, Isaiah fifty three three and Luke twenty three eighteen. Here in this chapter we learned the Antichrist will be admired, Revelation thirteen three to four. Christ will be exalted Philippians two nine. The Antichrist will be cast down to hell, Isaiah fourteen and Revelation nineteen. Christ came to do his Father's will, John six thirty eight. The Antichrist will come to do his own will, Daniel eleven thirty six. 36. Christ came to save, Luke 19, 10. The Antichrist will come to destroy, Daniel 8, 24. And one of his names is the son of perdition, and perdition means destruction. So, the Antichrist will come to destroy, Daniel 8, 24. Christ is called the Holy One, Mark 1, 24. The Antichrist is called the Wicked One, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. Christ is the Son of God, Luke 1, 34 and the Antichrist is the son of perdition or the son of destruction, Second 2 Thessalonians 2.3. So quite the contrast, quite the contrast between Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Antichrist. So our next point is a false incarnation, a false incarnation. The theological term incarnation is what happened when God the Son, the eternal Son of God, became flesh. We call that the incarnation. Now, there is something similar happening here in Satan's mind in this chapter, and what we could call that a false incarnation. It is a counterfeit. It is not the same as what we would call, uh, what we consider the union between Christ had becoming a man. This is a counterfeit of that. It's a counterfeit, but this is what Satan does. We know Satan counterfeits what God does. Uh, this counterfeit he does here will look will be good enough to deceive the entire world. The entire world will be deceived by this counterfeit of Satan. Everyone will be fooled by this. So if you want to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 2, we're going to look at verses 9 to 10. Paul describes this in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 to 10. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So he comes with all power, by the working of Satan, with all of Satan's power, he comes with signs and lying wonders. The first beast will come with all the power of Satan. This will include false signs, lying wonders, in other words, miracles. Miracles. We know the magicians, the the people in Egypt, they were able to perform some of the stuff that God did through Moses. So we know Satan has some power to do some things like that. And this man will come in that way. He'll be using Satan's power to perform what will be considered miracles. His ascension to power will come with things that cannot be explained in a physical realm. Paul is talking about supernatural things in these verses. And this man will be empowered by Satan to do things like that. He'll be a very frightening man. An evil man that has that power to do those things. You can imagine how very, how he could consolidate power rather quickly. I would not want to cross that man if he has that power. Also, look with me at 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 3. Paul gives this person a title. We mentioned it earlier. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed. The son of perdition. So we're going to look at that for a few minutes. That is a unique title It's given to this first beast. It's a very unique title we have here. It's a unique phrase. In fact, it's only used one other time in Scripture, and there is a link between both uses of that title. There's a link between the use of that name. If you think about who else was called the son of perdition, it, was, it might give you a clue. That other person was Judas, Judas Iscariot. The Greek word for perdition means destruction. So let's compare some scripture with scripture. Turn with me to John chapter 17 and look at verse 12. John chapter 17 and look at verse 12. We're going to look at the other use of that title, that name, the son of perdition. John 17, 12. John 17, verse 12 says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, this is Jesus talking, and none of them is, lo- is, is lost. Two weeks in a row. And none of them is lost, but the son of perdition. That the scripture might be fulfilled. The son of perdition. So here's that other usage. There's a connection between what's going on in Judas's life and the situation with the first beast in our text. That that, that phrase lets us know what's going on. So we see that the Antichrist, the first beast, and Judas are both given the same unique title. The only two times it's used, they're both given the same title. So we can gather that this beast's coming is in accord with all the power of Satan, and it has to be something like what happened to Judas here. Uh, you may be thinking, I know Judas betrayed the Lord, but he was just a human. Yes, he was, but there's some connection between what happened to Judas here and what happened with the and what's happening with the Antichrist. So turn with me again to John 13, back a few chapters, John 13. And we're going to look at verses 26 to 27, and I believe we'll have start getting our connection here between Judas and the Antichrist. So John 13, verses 26 to 27, Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest do quickly. Notice it says, Satan entered into him. Remember, Judas is called the son of perdition. The Antichrist, this beast, is called the son of perdition. And notice it says, Satan entered into him, or Satan entered into Judas. That is also a very unique phrase. It's found nowhere else in Scripture. Satan actually entered Judas at this time in order to fulfill the law's purposes. But what we have here is that connection. The son of perdition. The son of destruction is someone that Satan actually enters into, basically possesses, basically controls. So there's only two people, two men ever called that. Judas, the son of perdition, and now the Antichrist, this beast is called the son of perdition. So that helps us understand what's going on here with the Antichrist. He's basically, Satan has basically entered him. Basically, Satan's basically taken over his body. Satan's basically possessing him, controlling him. So the son of perdition was someone Satan has entered, and that's happening to this beast here in Revelation 13. Satan entered the beast, and at that point, that beast, that man, becomes a son of perdition. Now, he is a counterfeit son. What happens to the first beast is almost like a false incarnation. That is basically what is happening here. In this chapter, we are going to see Satan develop his unholy trinity as a counterfeit for the real God. This is the first step in the development of that false trinity, the false son. Satan entered him. Satan entered this man who was who was the beast. So he enters him, and now we have that false incarnation. Then we see this character pretend in Scripture to be the ultimate counterfeit. Satan tries to accomplish with this man everything he's always wanted to do. Through this man, Satan tries to get his kingdom. And for about three and a half years, he'll have that. Satan, through this man, tries to get the world to worship him. And for about three and a half years, most of the world will worship him. And through this man, Satan tries to kill all the saints. Satan has tried to do these things all throughout history, all throughout Scripture. And he seems for these final three and a half years to finally have the authority. Finally, he's laid the groundwork. Finally, he's developed the world. Finally, he's got it to the point where he can come in take over that man, and fulfill what he wants to do, or so he thinks. But this is an imitation. This is a counterfeit imitation because nothing can obviously compare to the true Messiah. Now, one author in his book called The Antichrist brings out some of these contrasts for us. It's a long quote. But I'm going to read all of it because it's very good. Uh, he says, Do we read of Christ going forth to sow the good seed? Matthew 13. Then we also read of the enemy going forth to sow his tares, an imitation wheat. Do we read of the children of God? Then we also read of the children of the wicked one. This whole quote is going to show you how Satan just counterfeits, counterfeits, counterfeits over and over again. Do we read of God working in his children both to will and do his good pleasure? Then we are also told that the prince of the power of the air is the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Do we read of the gospel of God? Then also we read that Satan has a gospel, another gospel, which is not another. Did Christ appoint apostles? Then Satan has his apostles too. Are we told that the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God? Then Satan also provides his deep things. Are we told that God by his angel will seal his servants in their foreheads? So also read that Satan by his angels will set a mark in the foreheads of his devotees. We'll look at that mark here at the end of this chapter. Does the Father seek worshipers? So also does Satan. Does Christ quote scripture? So also does Satan. Is Christ the light of the world? Then Satan also is transformed as an angel of light. Is Christ denominated the lion of the tribe of Judah? And then the devil is also referred to as a roaring lion. Do we read of Christ and his angels? Then we read of the devil and his angels? Did Christ work miracles? So also will Satan. Is Christ seated upon a throne? So also will Satan be. Does God have a city, the new Jerusalem? Then Satan has a city, Babylon. Is there a mystery of godliness? Also there is a mystery of iniquity. Does God have an only begotten Son? So we read of the son of perdition. Is Christ called the seed of the woman? Then the Antichrist will be the seed of the serpent. The Son of God, also the Son of Man, then a son of Satan, who will also be the man of sin. Is there a holy trinity? Then there is also an evil trinity. That's all we see happening here in this chapter. This is all counterfeit is all counterfeit. That's all Satan can do, is counterfeit. He cannot create something genuine of his own. He can only counterfeit. He can only imitate. must keep in mind that God is in control. God is in control. Uh, God knows what's happening. God knows in three and a half years after this man, after Satan enters this man, that he'll be completely destroyed and Jesus Christ will come and set up his kingdom and it'll be a wonderful kingdom and And his son will receive the worship. God is in control. But for a little while, this will be going on in the world. So next, let's look at the nationality of the first beast. Look at verse 1 again with me. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And this, in verse 1, John says that he sees the beast coming up out of the sea and this gives us a clue of his origin. Now, there is a big debate in Bible prophecy. Will the Antichrist be a Jew or will he be a Gentile? Well, we're going to examine what I believe is every every passage of Scripture that I believe could even give us a hint of what his nationality will be, and we'll try to figure out what that says. So we're going to examine that. So see how it says, saw a beast rise up out of the sea. This type of reference in the Bible usually refers to the Mediterranean Sea and the people groups that surround the Mediterranean Sea. So from that, we can assume kind of tentatively that the Antichrist will be a Gentile or be of some sort of Gentile origin. But we're continuing on. Uh, If you can turn with me to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 8 to 9. Daniel chapter 8, verses 8 to 9. And we'll be in Daniel for a couple more references after that. So once you get to Daniel, just stay there. Daniel chapter 8, verses 8 to 9. God's word says, Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven, and out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great, toward the south, and toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. So these verses suggest to us that the little horn, which is the Antichrist, we know that to be the Antichrist, and the beast of Revelation 13, came from the four horns that replaced the one horn of the he-goat, which we know to be the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great. So this would indicate for us that the Antichrist would appear to be at least part Greek. At least part Greek. Now if you turn with me to Daniel 9, verse 26. Daniel 9, verse 26. And that verse says, And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. This verse tells us the prince, which is the Antichrist, would be the same people that destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. We know these people were the Romans, or today you might call them Italians. So it would appear the Antichrist would be at least part Italian. So if you're Italian, could you please leave our services at this point, because we're afraid of you. So the Antichrist would appear to be at least part Italian. Now let's go to Daniel chapter 11 and look at verses 36 to 37. Daniel 11 verses 36 to 37. And the king shall do according to his will. He shall exalt himself and, mag- and magnify himself above every god. shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the god of his fathers. nor desire of women nor regard any god. For he shall magnify himself above all. These verses tell us that the beast will not regard the god of his fathers. Now notice, that God is capitalized. What does a capital G God always refer to? God, our God, the God. So he says, he shall not regard the God of his fathers. So these verses seem to indicate to us that the beast will also be Jew or part Jewish. So putting it all together, looking at all the scripture references that possibly mention the Antichrist nationality, it seems he'll be a composite man. It will be a combination of Greek, Italian, and Jewish. So, in all probability, I believe the Antichrist will appear to be European, possibly like an Adolf Hitler and others who had that Jewish blood in their ancestry, but kept it a secret unless it benefited them. So he'll be European. He'll probably come from the European continent, but he'll also have that Jewish blood in him, and it looks like he'll be Italian, Greek, and Jewish that we know of. So that's a a a unique combination. And I believe he'll probably keep his Jewish ancestry a secret like Adolf Hitler did until it it suits his purposes. And I believe those purposes will be suited around the midpoint of the tribulation, which we're studying right now. And he'll say, hey, I'm Jewish. And he'll prove it. And he'll say, I'm the Messiah. I'm who you've been waiting for. I believe that's how he's going to do that. So Satan empowers the first beast. Let's go look at verses 1 to 2 again. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. That should sound a little bit familiar to you. Satan enters this man. He energizes him. His coming is within all the power and activity of Satan. A global coalition of governments will be controlled, ultimately, by this final world ruler. And this will happen for the final three and a half years of the tribulation. I believe this passage is emphasizing that this man will have global political control at this point, And that's a point for us to dwell on. We hear a lot of talk about one world governments. Uh We can have peace if we just unite. This is the direction our world is heading. Surrendering of sovereignty. And all these treaties and all these commitments all over the world. Eventually, the world will be under the control of this one man and a one world government. This one world, this, this world, one world government will control everything politically. This man will control everything happening economically. And this man will also control everything happening religiously on the planet. Or at least try to. All these things combined. Satan, as that great prince of the power of the air, will have control of all these things. And this man that has control of all these things will also have the power of Satan backing him as he has control of all these things. That's a terrible thing to contemplate for the world. Now let's look at those seven heads and ten horns. The monstrosity of the seven heads and ten horns probably refers to the remnants of the the revived Roman Empire at the beginning of the tribulation. Those those ten nations, those leaders that were overthrown by the little horn of Daniel 7-8, Ten crowns, therefore, refer to the diadems or symbols of governmental authority. The fact that they have names of blasphemy indicates their blasphemous opposition to God and to Christ. We believe there will be uh, ten nations that unite behind this, this Antichrist. He'll be just in with them, and then he'll take over that coalition. And that's how he takes over the world. Notice authority is given to the beast. Look at verse 2. And the beast, which I saw, was locked into a leopard and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. You can turn with me to Daniel 7, Daniel chapter 7. Now you may recognize this imagery here. We studied this imagery a few months back. A lion, a bear, and a leopard. It comes from the prophecies of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 4 to 6. If you turn there, I'm going to read those verses. Daniel 7, starting in verse 4. The first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. And I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made stand upon his feet as a man. And a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second like to a bear. And it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also four heads, and dominion was given to it. What you see here is very interesting. When Daniel writes about it, notice the order, lion, bear, leopard. This is very significant, and this is how we know. I believe our our interpretation is correct. From Daniel's perspective, looking into the future, he saw the succession of world empires. It was Babylon, the lion, Persia, the bear, and Greece, the leopard. So he was in the 6th century looking forward in time. And that's how he writes about it. When we get the revelation, John obviously is not in the 6th century B.C. He is in the 1st century A.D. He's in the Roman Empire at that time, and he's looking back at these, at these empires. And so he lists them in the opposite order. Verse 2, again, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet as the be- feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. Daniel, looking forward in time, sees them in one order. John, looking backward in time, sees them in the exact opposite order, and that's what you would expect. So we know both of these are accurate. They're both looking from different time perspectives. One is looking forward in time, one is looking back in time, and that is how we really know these are the same empires that both are talking about here. The fourth empire here in Revelation 13 gathers all the elements of the previous ones, the elements of the leopard, the bear and the lion into itself, and therefore it's far more dreadful and powerful and blasphemous than the preceding empires. The beasts selected are 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 typical or typical of the revived Roman Empire and the Great Tribulation, having the majesty and the power of the lion, the strength of the bear, and the swiftness or the speed of the leopard, and how it took over the whole world, and all that, and then all that also has the backing of the dragon or Satan. Empowering this man, empowering this empire. Uh, verse 2 again the dragon gave his power and his seat and great authority. Notice his authority was given to him. The Antichrist's authority was given to him by the dragon, who was Satan. Notice again the counterfeiting, the imitating. The counterfeit father in this counterfeit, unholy trinity gives his counterfeit son his power, his seat, and great authority. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? God gave his son Jesus his power. God gave his son Jesus his seat at his right hand, and God gave his son Jesus authority as the king of the kings. Again, Satan counterfeits, imitates. That's all he can do. Satan has no originality. He does nothing original. He imitates. He counterfeits. That's all he can do. Now let's look at the counterfeit resurrection. He keeps counterfeiting. This man, prepared by Satan for this moment, is the coming world ruler known as the Antichrist. Look at Revelation 13, verse 3. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now keep in mind the theme of counterfeiting. Jesus was to the Jews of his day an itinerant rabbi who ministered for three and a half years, and he caused quite the stir in Israel. For those three and a half years, but he really was not known outside of Israel during his lifetime. But what was it that catapulted Jesus from being that itiner- itinerant rabbi in the eyes in the eyes of man to the Messiah? What what catapulted him from being just that itinerant rabbi that caused some, some problems in Israel to being a universal figure worshipped by millions and millions of people? What catapulted that? What caused that to happen? It was his resurrection. It was his resurrection? Jesus' resurrection did all of that, and he got that notoriety, all of that because of his resurrection. Now remember, Satan knows that. Remember, Satan does nothing that is original. Remember, Satan is that great imitator. He's a great counterfeiter. So what do you think Satan wants to do? Satan wants to try to emulate that resurrection. He wants that. Satan needs to have that similar experience. Satan needs his false messiah to have a death and resurrection experience to the world. And notice, it was after three and a half years that this death and this resurrection experience of the Antichrist happens. He was on the world scene for three and a half years. Even in the timing of it, Satan imitates everything. He's a counterfeit. He imitates everything. Now, quite how he accomplished this, we really don't know. But we do know only God can create life. We do know only God can truly resurrect someone. Satan can't do that. Satan can't create life. Satan can't resurrect. Satan can't bring somebody back from the dead. So we know Satan's that great counterfeiter, that great imitator. He does something to imitate it, to counterfeit it. So we know this is a counterfeit resurrection. And I think the wording of Revelation 13, verse 3, gives us a hint on that. Notice how John words this. One of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. He doesn't say it was wounded to death had the appearance of being wounded to death, as it were wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed, not the wound that killed him, but his deadly wound was healed. John never says this first beast actually died, just that he was wounded to death, not killed, and that his deadly wound was healed. The world thinks he died. The world thinks he died. We also know by the fact that Satan is that great counterfeiter, that great imitator, that this is not an authentic death and resurrection. And Zechariah seems to speak of the same incident in Zechariah chapter 11. So if you turn with me there to Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 15 to 17. Zechariah 11 verses 15 to 17. These verses are talking about the Antichrist. It seems to be talking about the same incident. Zechariah 11 verses 15 to 17. And God's word says, And the Lord said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd, that's the Antichrist. For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land, which shall not visit those that be cut off. Neither shall seek the young one, nor heal, that that is broken, nor feed, that that still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat, and tear their claws in pieces. So he destroys, he just he feeds off them, he destroys them. Woe to the idle shepherd, that's the Antichrist, that leaveth the flock. Now notice this, the sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean, dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly destroyed. That could be that wounding unto death, that, that head wound. Here is Zachariah notes he was injured in his arm and his right eye or his head, the right side of his head. It would appear he loses the use of his arm, his right arm, and he suffers either blindness or the loss of his right eye because of this wounding unto death. We can surmise that someone orchestrates an attempted assassination against this man and we could see that many people would have a reason to but i believe satan is the one that orchestrates his assassination attempt on his this man because he needs it to be at three and a half years the mimic the counterfeit he needs this man assassinated or it looks like he's assassinated within three and a half years so this uh, attempted assassination is orchestrated which to the world appears to have been successful it appears that this man was assassinated Probably on live TV, he gets probably shot in the eye, the arm. They probably see the head explode. They probably see all that. They appear, this man is dead. This man is gone. But the whole earth, as a result of this, follows after the beast. Satan is presenting this man as capable of resurrection to the world. He received a fatal wound, but he's brought back to life. And what does that do? It does what you would expect it to do. The whole earth was amazed, and they followed after the beast. Is at this point, remember, the church is gone. The restrainer, the Holy Spirit is gone. All we have is 144,000 witnesses going around the world at this point. People are being given over to this lie. It is such a powerful, strong deception. It is such a great counterfeit, the greatest deception ever orchestrated in human history. And most of the world buys it hook, line, and sinker. Like that man, he was killed, we saw it. And then he was resurrected. This has to be the Messiah, the great, the Satan's great counterfeit. So this pseudo-resurrected leader or this, this fake or this counterfeit resurrected leader will be very charismatic up until this point. He's been fixing the world's problems. He's been taking control. He's been giving some stability to the world. He, he, people are giving their freedoms over to him because out of fear. They give him freedoms over to his government. Now he steps into the point where he's not just a political leader He now takes the mantle of being this religious leader. He's been resurrected to the world's eyes anyway. Is at this point we see him enter the temple. Right after this resurrection, right after Satan enters him, right after he officially becomes a son of perdition, he enters the temple, proclaiming himself to be God. That's the abomination, desolation. People are amazed. They are in awe at him. He's had this resurrection experience, and now they are giving themselves over to the beast. They're amazed at him. The world follows after the beast. Now, notice it's Satan that entered the the Son of Perdition, entered the Antichrist. So it's Satan in the Antichrist's body that enters the temple and proclaims himself as God. That makes it mean a little bit more, I think. Satan enters in a temple dedicated to God and says, I'm God. World worship me. And the world worships him as God. How blasphemous! can you get? So we're going to wrap up for this morning. We're going to have two more weeks of this chapter. So what do we do with this passage? What do we do with this information? With these truths we learned, how could a message like this be applied to our life? And it took me a while. Like We always have to have some application in the messages we give. They have to edify us, help us out some way, it took me a while, but then the Lord just kind of gave it to me in rapid succession. Revelation 13, 1-3 describes a vision of the beast rising up out of the sea with, with seven heads and ten horns with the name of blasphemy on its heads. The beast is described as having the characteristics of a leopard, a bear, and a lion. The dragon gives this beast his power. His seed is great authority. Satan enters this man. The whole world worships the beast. I'm going to give what I believe are five important principles from this passage that I believe are relevant to us today from this passage. Number one, evil exists in the world, and it can take many forms. Evil exists, and it can take many forms. Evil is real. Evil is ever-present all around us. The beast in this passage represents a powerful force of evil that seeks to oppress, that seeks to dominate. So we must be on guard against powerful forces of evil in our day, in our country, that seek to dominate the culture in the country. And I can think of many right now that seek to dominate the culture, and the country. Forces of evil. That's demonic evil trying to dominate our country. And we can see that happening all around us. Number two, we must be vigilant and aware of the signs of evil in the world. Just as the beast in this passage rises up seemingly out of nowhere, evil can can catch us off guard sometimes. If we're not paid attention, evil can get the upper hand before we even realize it's happening. And we've seen that recently in our country. Evil can come to dominate a culture without the culture fully grasping that it's evil, demonic evil, that's dominating it. They think it's it's, it's tolerance, it's love, it's demonic evil from hell that's dominating the culture. Number three, evil often tries to disguise itself and to deceive. The blasphemous names of the heads of the beast suggest that it is attempting to mimic the divine and fool people into following it. Evil says love wins. When it's really perversion. Evil promotes what's called a, what it calls a right to choose, when it's really just child sacrifice. Evil promotes procedures. They say just affirm your identity. And we know that's not affirming an identity. That's mutilating children. Evil is masterful at deceiving so many in the world. Even Christians are deceived by a lot of this evil. I've heard a few... And I hate to, I'm not going to mention their names, but they're Southern Baptist preachers kind of halfway affirming or not condemning some of this stuff that's going on right now. Oh, we've got to be loving. We've got to accept them, we, 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 which we do, but we can't accept that sin. We can't accept this, sin. We can't affirm that sin. Number four, we must resist the temptation to follow evil and instead remain faithful to what is good and true. The beast in this passage has the power to make war with the saints and overcome them. We must stand firm in our convictions, stand fast in our faith, and be not swayed by the lies. Stand fast, whatever the cost. It may seem easier to people to ignore things, just let things happen, just let that be. But for too long, I believe that's what many Christians in our country have done. Oh, that, I'm just going to ignore that. It's not affecting me. We ignored it, now it's affecting us. We can't ignore anymore. Number five, ultimately, evil will be defeated and justice will prevail. The beast in this passage is eventually thrown into the lake of fire. We can take comfort and knowledge that no matter how powerful evil may seem, it will not have the final say in the end. Satan is already defeated. God will win in the end. He's already won. King Jesus already won. Jesus will rule and reign on earth. Evil will be defeated. What is good and what is right and what is just? We know will prevail like jesus said for yet a little while we're in this world and a little while you'll be with me that's a comforting words, so Lord. we thank you for this morning lord we thank you for our, our study in revelation 13 i know it's a, a heavy subject lord please uh help us to uh take it to heart lord and apply it and just be on on mind and on look lookout for this lord um uh, please help those that uh that I just have some concerns about things that were maybe mentioned in this message. Lord, please comfort them and be with them. Lord, and be with us as we uh, think about this message, Lord. Let me pray.